Israel pursues its military objectives in Gaza, we believe Israel must do more to protect innocent civilians. Close to 200 people were killed in Gaza in the first day since the ceasefire there ended. For Saturday, December 2nd, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Coming up, how the actions of one Florida judge affect the many trials of former President Trump. If she keeps delaying and delaying, we go past the May 2024 deadline, and now we're into 2025, then we've blown out Georgia entirely. And the world's biggest climate summit, COP28, is underway in Dubai. We've got to stop making the problem worse. And that means phasing out fossil fuels as the primary driver of climate change. Also, what do Garth Brooks, Bruce Springsteen, and Beyonce have in common? Find out after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israeli officials say they've recalled their diplomatic team that had been negotiating a possible second temporary truce in the fight against Hamas in Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office says the talks had reached an impasse. NPR's Brian Mann has more from Tel Aviv. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. And we'll have more on that in just a minute. Vice President Harris is trying to drum up support and engagement with younger voters when it comes to the White House's when it comes to the White House's climate policies. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. Worldwide. Alejandra Burunda, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris attended the conference. She later spoke to reporters about the war in Gaza, saying Israel must do more to protect civilians. She said Israel has a right to eliminate the threat of Hamas, but it matters how. A spokesperson for the United Nations says Israel will not renew a visa for the top U.N. humanitarian aid official for Gaza and the West Bank. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf reports. Lynn Hastings has been in her role as the humanitarian coordinator for the occupied Palestinian territories for nearly three years. But this week, Israeli officials informed the U.N. that her visa will not be updated past its due date sometime later this month, a U.N. spokesperson told reporters. When asked for comment, Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs told NPR that the U.N. has a, quote, one-sided and biased attitude, and that its conduct during this war between Israel and Hamas has been a, quote, shame for the organization. It said that they will no longer be automatically granting visas to U.N. representatives. According to the U.N., staff do not overstay their visas in a country, but it's unclear whether Hastings will be replaced. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Republican state officials in Louisiana are appealing a recent federal court ruling about the state's congressional election map in a long-running fight over the collective voting strength of the state's black voters. NPR's Hansi Luang has more. For decades, the majority of lawsuits under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act have been filed by private individuals and groups, like the black voters challenging Louisiana's congressional map. Now, Republican state officials are asking the full Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to review a panel ruling after a separate federal appeals court found that private individuals do not have the right to sue under Section 2. If the full Fifth Circuit takes on this case, the process for getting a new congressional map in Louisiana could get delayed. The state's Republican-controlled legislature previously approved a map that a judge found was likely to dilute the collective power of the state's black voters. Anzila Wong, NPR News. This is NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. On Monday, House lawmakers on Beacon Hill will make another attempt to pass a nearly $3 billion budget. This morning, for the third straight day, the Republican minority prevented action. Mr. Frost of Auburn doubts the presence of a quorum. The chair can ascertain that a quorum is not present. Under House Rule 82, the House will adjourn and reconvene Monday at 10 a.m. Republicans oppose funding for the state's overburdened shelter system. Eight aging dams in central and western Massachusetts will soon be removed. It's part of a $25 million project announced by the state. Removal of the dams is expected to protect communities from floods, improve water quality, and restore wildlife habitats. Researchers on Cape Cod are trying to find a way to remove forever chemicals known as PFAS from the environment. The Massachusetts Alternative Septic System Test Center in Sandwich is using wood chips to help eliminate nitrogen from a waste stream. Director Brian Baumgartel says they're working with the Environmental Protection Agency. What we wanted to really establish was in the process of potentially deploying these wood chip removal systems for nitrogen, are we overlooking something else in terms of these other contaminants that we should be worrying about that are making their way into the environment? And he says the early results show the wood chips are effective at removing PFAS. Exposure to PFAS has been linked to heightened risk for some cancers. Tomorrow, the city of Worcester will mark the 24th anniversary of the cold storage and warehouse fire. Six firefighters were killed when they entered the abandoned building to search for two people inside. Later, it was learned the couple escaped earlier. A ceremony will be held at the fire station that was built on the site of the fire. The Bruins take on the Maple Leafs in Toronto tonight. 49 degrees at 5.06, cloudy tonight with a low in the low 40s. Rain tomorrow, mid-40s, becoming partly sunny on Monday with a chance of rain near 50 and partly sunny on Tuesday low 40s. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us for All Things Considered. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks, in for Scott Detrow. Israel claims to have hit more than 400 targets in Gaza since a week-long truce with Hamas ended early Friday morning. And according to Gaza's health ministry, the heavy bombardment and ground operations have killed nearly 200 Palestinians. Meanwhile, talks in Qatar to possibly restart a ceasefire broke down. We go now to NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Tel Aviv for the latest. Hi, Eleanor. Hi, Miles. So... Tell us about how Israelis and Palestinians are feeling about the conflict resuming. Well, I was at a very large rally in Tel Aviv tonight where people were calling to bring back all the hostages. There are still more than 100 Israeli hostages being held in Gaza. And I spoke with 30-year-old Omri Shtivi, whose 28-year-old brother is still being held. He was with a group of people who were holding up big posters of his brother. He says it's very, very hard. Let's listen to him. We are, um, of course, uh, depressed that the negotiation is stopped by Hamas and Hamas broke the negotiation, all the deal. And we, we hope to see all the hostages soon. We hope to see it done soon. It's very hard for us. We call to all the, all the world, everyone who listened, all the world, need to go out to shout, to call the leaders, to call the governments, to know the truth, what happened in October 7th. 
and uh, to release the hostages right now, right now. You know, he said the only priority should be getting all the hostages out, not the war. You know, I was also today in the Palestinian town of Ramallah talking to people. They, too, are very happy that 240 Palestinians have been released from Israeli prisons. You know, a lot of these Palestinian detainees have not been charged, and many were arrested after October 7th. That's the case for 17-year-old Asil Shahada, who was arrested in November for allegedly lunging at an Israeli soldier with scissors at a checkpoint, and she was shot in the leg. NPR spoke by phone with her mother, Rima Shahada. She had been planning a homecoming celebration for her daughter. Here she is. You know, she says, I was hoping they would release her. Sadly, my hope is all gone now. Hmm. I know Vice President Kamala Harris spoke about the war while she was in Dubai at the COP28 climate summit. What did the vice president say? She said Israel has the right to go after Hamas, but it matters how, and that Israel must do more to protect innocent civilians. Here's part of what she said. Too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. Frankly, the scale of civilian suffering and the images and videos coming from Gaza are devastating. Okay, so it seems like the U.S. and then other Arab nations in the region wanted the ceasefire to continue. Can you tell us a little bit more about why talks broke down in Qatar? Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office put out a statement, and they said they pulled their team out because Hamas did not live up to its promise to release all of the women and children. But on Friday, Hamas accused Israel of breaking the ceasefire. So the two sides are very apart. They see nothing the same way. And that was clear to me today. You know, being in Ramallah, speaking to Palestinians, and then right afterwards being in Tel Aviv, speaking to Israelis, it's like two completely different realities. They have different takes and interpretations on the situation, on this war. Israelis are saying the world is not fully acknowledging the trauma of October 7th and the hostages, while the Palestinians are glued to the news watching the bombing of Gaza. And they say October 7th is one day while they've been under Israeli occupation in the West Bank and had innocent people killed by Israeli forces in Gaza for years. And while Israel talks about eradicating Hamas, the Palestinians I spoke with give Hamas credit for putting the plight of the Palestinian people back at the top of the world's agenda. That's NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Eleanor. You're welcome, Miles. This is a persecution. Felony violations for national security laws. We need one more indictment. Criminal conspiracy. To close out this election. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It's time for Trump's trials. Our weekly take on the multiple cases former President Donald Trump is facing all while running for president. Last night, federal judges ruled that Trump cannot claim presidential immunity in pending civil and criminal cases stemming from the 2021 insurrection at the Capitol. That means the January 6th criminal case pending against Trump can proceed. It's scheduled to get underway in March. But we're going to dig in now to another pending Trump trial, the classified documents case in Florida, where a delay seems inevitable. We're joined now by NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hi, Domenico. Hey, Miles. Also joining us is Melissa Murray. She's a law professor at NYU and co-author of the upcoming book, The Trump Indictments. Thanks for being here, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Melissa, I want to start by talking about the judge in Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about how long she's been a judge, her history as a judge, and how that plays into this case? 
Well, Eileen Cannon is sort of a classic Trump appointee. So if you'll remember from 2016 until he left office, Donald Trump really transformed the federal judiciary. He had the Senate on his side and he was able to push through a lot of his judicial picks. And they were all very, very young. Judge Cannon is no exception. Prior to her appointment, she really had no other judicial experience. She had been working as a litigator at a law firm, Gibson Dunn, and then later she served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Florida, where she worked primarily on appellate matters, although she did have a couple of trials, but they were mostly pretty anodyne federal trials. But It does suggest that when she took the bench in November 2020, she didn't have a lot of criminal trial experience. And since taking the bench, she's only had about 14 days of trial in her courtroom, but she hasn't had anything nearly as complex or presented the kinds of unprecedented issues that this classified documents case is going to present. Melissa, can you walk through exactly why some legal experts now are looking at how Judge Cannon is operating in this case and saying that the things she's doing are going to lead to a delayed trial. What is actually happening here? Well, there's been a lot of slow walking here. Um, The Mar-a-Lago case is one, I think, that um, presents some pretty straightforward issues. I mean, there are a lot of complexities involving how classified information will be used as evidence. But for the most part, you know, there's an obstruction charge. There's the question of the improper retention of the documents. And it should proceed in a pretty timely fashion. But what we've seen from Judge Cannon in some of these initial motions that have to be dealt with is that she seems to want to kind of slow walk things. For example, there is a very big question about what kind of information can be admitted into evidence, given that so much of this information is classified. Um, There's a question about the trial date. She's really delayed a lot of those decisions that could be decided right now. She said that she's not going to rule on Donald Trump's motion to further delay this trial until later when more information comes out. But that in and of itself sets up all of this to be delayed at the last minute. And the question here isn't just about this particular trial, but the sequencing of all four of these criminal trials. And Donald Trump knows this, his lawyers know this, and we've seen the effort to delay these trials from the January 6th DC trial to this trial in the Southern District of Florida, and it's going to continue down the line. And if Judge Cannon doesn't hold the line on this, it is going to have a ripple effect. I mean, I think there's a valid concern that if Judge Cannon pushes this off beyond the 2024 election into 2025 and former President Trump becomes President Trump again, that he would make efforts to interfere with the Justice Department and quash this. Uh, So I think that there's some really valid concerns there. Melissa, I I do want to zero in on something you kind of touched on, which is the interplay between all of these different trials. It's something that Honestly, I'm still really confused about in terms of how they all decide their schedules and work around each other. Is this can you explain this a little bit more? Like, are people in communication to try to work out, you know, when Trump is going to appear, where or how how actually when you are um, in the middle of so many legal issues, do these things actually get worked out? Just as a practical matter, no judge in the United States, whether it's at the state level or the federal level, is going to make Trump's defense team turn around from having just tried one case to verdict to then immediately turning to another trial. They're going to give them a little bit of a breather, which is why when Judge Cannon 
doesn't really issue a ruling on the question of when the timetable is going to be set for this particular trial, it kind of leaves everything up in the air because if she goes second, if she goes third, we don't know. And that leads to a lot of lag time for the other trials. We have Fonnie Willis down in Georgia arguing that she wants to get started in August. That's probably timed to allow for the Jack Smith trial in DC to happen and to allow for Mar-a-Lago to happen because it's sort of clear that those two cases are ready to go. Judge Cannon is kind of the fulcrum around a lot of this because if she keeps delaying and delaying and delaying, we go past the May 2024 deadline that Jack Smith has articulated, and now we're into 2025, then we've blown out Georgia entirely. Domenico, how does all of this affect whether voters are going to take into what they hear at these trials when they go actually go to the ballot box? Well, I think we're on a collision course that I don't think a lot of people see just how quickly it's coming up. Because, you know, we mentioned that it's 44 days until the Iowa caucuses. And what we just found out this week, we just got the Republican National Committee calendar for their delegates and how they're apportioned. And that's how a nominee is selected. They have to win a majority of the delegates. And half of the delegates, almost half of the delegates are going to be decided already apportioned by March 5th. And what is on March 4th, but the supposed beginning Beginning, trial date in New York. By the end of March, 70% of the delegates will have already been decided. So this idea that somehow a conviction of Trump will change the course of the Republican primary just isn't going to happen. We're existing in two different universes because the primary is largely going to be over before there's even a chance for a conviction. That was NPR's senior editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, and NYU law professor, Melissa Murray. Thanks to you both. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include Real Women Have Curves at ART. This holiday season, see the empowering new musical that explores life's unexpected curves. Starts December 6th, amrep.org. And Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. Climate change is urgent and existential, but not hopeless. Every day next week on 90.9 WBUR, the science, the business, and the stakes of carbon capture. Listen every day on the radio and the WBUR app, 49 degrees at 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at SmartMouth.com. From Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at MadeInCookware.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. 1.5 degrees Celsius. Scientists cite that number over and over when talking about climate change. It's the threshold by which temperatures should not increase on a rapidly warming planet without risking things like mass extinctions and catastrophic sea level rise. And the main driver of these rising temperatures are greenhouse gases, the pollution emitted from burning fossil fuels like oil and gas. Every year, world leaders gather at COP, the UN-sponsored Conference of the Parties, to devise solutions to a growing existential crisis for humankind. This year, COP28 is taking place in Dubai. It got underway on Thursday and continues through the 12th of the month. Speakers at the opening event this week stress the urgency of the issue. We are miles from the goals of the Paris Agreement and minutes to midnight for the 1.5 degree limit. But it is not too late. We can, you can, prevent planetary crash and burn. That's the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The science is clear. The 1.5 degree limit is only possible if we ultimately stop burning all fossil fuels not reduce, not abate, phase out with a clear time frame aligned with 1.5 degrees. But that goal is slipping. Be flexible, find common ground, come forward with solutions and achieve consensus and never lose sight of our North Star of 1.5. That's Sultan Al-Jabber the president of this year's climate talks, speaking at the opening of the climate summit his country is hosting. Al-Jabber leads one of the Middle East's biggest renewable companies, but he's also the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. He's made clear that oil producers should have a seat at the table this year. We must look for ways and ensure the inclusion of the role of fossil fuels. He also had this to say. And let history reflect the fact that this is the presidency that made a bold choice to proactively engage with oil and gas companies. Coming near the end of what will probably be the hottest year in human history makes COP28 all the more important. But it's being held in one of the biggest oil-producing countries in the world and being led by a man who runs one of the biggest oil companies in the world, which has left a lot of climate change advocates feeling skeptical about the ability to achieve much-needed solutions. NPR international correspondent Aya Batraoui is in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, at COP28. Hi, Aya. Hi. So you've been living in the Gulf for over a decade now, and you're covering this year's summit in Dubai. Can you tell us a little bit about how these oil-producing countries view climate change? Sure. 
So I'm at the summit this year, and I can tell you, it's already it's December, and it is hot outside. It's warm. Mm. I mean, not so hot that you can't be outside, but it's definitely warm. And so they understand very well that climate change impacts them here, and that the science shows that if we keep warming the average temperatures around the world, it's actually going to become so hot that you cannot live here at all. And wow. already in the summers, I can tell you for six months out of the year or more, we are living in air conditioned bubbles to survive the heat and the humidity here. And the extreme weather also impacts the Gulf countries. There's monsoons, there's flooding, there's problems with food security, not having enough, you know, agricultural land. So they know that this is a problem for them. However, there's also another existential problem for them, which is that there are economies rely on oil and gas and what that oil and gas does is it buys domestic stability it keeps the gulf publics the gulf citizens placated and and having really great benefits with healthcare, education all kinds of you know modern cities and all of that but it also buys these gulf arab countries a lot of international clout so if the world stops using this oil and gas this is going to directly impact their economies and maybe even their political stability at the same time they know the world is warming and that they're impacted so they are caught in this dilemma right so what are the uae and then the world's biggest oil producer saudi arabia what are they doing about climate change the first thing they're trying to do is they're racing to diversify their economies away from relying on oil and gas. They know that the world is moving away from oil and gas, and they know that that means like it could spell the end of their economy. So they're investing heavily in renewable energy. They want to be part of the nuclear technology, solar, wind farms, electric vehicles, all of that. They're investing heavily. Their oil and gas money is going towards these kinds of companies and that kind of technology. They're also trying to push for technologies, though, that aren't really working well yet or haven't become affordable, like carbon capture. And the thing is, the world is still demanding more of their oil and gas. Like we know that the U.S., the Biden administration, has pressured and asked Gulf Arab countries to pump more oil to keep prices low for American consumers. We know that Europe is turning to countries like Qatar for its gas needs after turning away from Russia due to the Ukraine war. And then you also have countries like China. They are the biggest client of oil and gas from this part of the world. So while the UAE and Saudi Arabia have joined this net zero club of countries that are you know, saying they're going to cut emissions, it's only within their borders. And they still have every intention to keep pumping that oil and gas to be burned in other countries. Well, let me ask about one of the most interesting storylines of COP28. It's that it's being led by Sultan al-Jaber. We heard about him earlier. He's the man presiding over the talks this year. But he also runs one of the largest oil companies in the world. How does that affect the talks this year? Yeah, I mean, this is a very powerful man. He has many titles. He's the head of the state oil company, Adnoc, in the UAE. He's also the head of a major renewables company here called Mazdar. And he's a minister, and now he's the COP28 president. So what all of that means is that on the one hand, he can cut through a lot of bureaucracy. This is a small country of just 1.3 million citizens, and it's led by a hereditary ruling family. So they can quickly push changes and policies without backlash or the kind of red tape and state and federal laws that you would find in the U.S., for example. Um, but here are some of the things he has said and hasn't said about his role. For example, Algebra has not voiced public support for a phase-out of oil and gas. If anything, as the CEO of Adnoc, he's promoting spending billions of dollars on new oil and gas investments and exploration, hmm. just like Saudi Aramco is doing. And what he has said, though, is that a phase down of these fossil fuels is inevitable and necessary. But he hasn't given a timeline. 
He hasn't said when that should happen by. And he's also said, you cannot unplug the world from the current energy system until you build a new one. And so that's why you're seeing the UAE spending a lot of money in renewables and still in oil and gas. Okay, and so as host of this year's talks, what are the UAE's goals here? Well, they definitely want a historic summit. They want to show that, you know, this this was something tangible. They've already pledged $100 million to something called a loss and damage fund that's supposed to help developing countries adapt to climate change. And they're committing huge sums towards renewable technology and financing. And don't forget, there's huge windfall from this energy transition. It impacts every industry, so they want to be part of that. But the UAE and other oil producers would also probably like to steer these talks in a way that gives them a bigger say at the table around the language about phasing out or phasing down fossil fuels. And these UN talks, they adopt positions based on consensus. So it's not just the UAE that can influence these talks. Countries like China also can. But for a pretty small country like the UAE, pledging net zero, hosting these talks, it helps them secure a voice and frame the message at these climate summits. And let's return to the science. The UN experts have said time is running out. We are getting further and further away from reaching that 1.5 degree threshold. And to do that, we have to cut carbon emissions by almost half of their current levels by 2030. And you're not gonna get there by burning more oil and gas. So I think Gulf states understand that, but the world's economies are still demanding their oil and gas. And don't forget their economies need that oil and gas revenue. Yeah, it is a just a crazy contradiction. NPR international correspondent, Aya Batrawi in Dubai, thank you. Thanks, Miles. And now let's turn to another issue getting attention at the climate talks in Dubai. For the first time, health is on the agenda at the COP summit. The global health community has a simple message. Fixing climate change will make people healthier. I spoke earlier about this with Alejandra Barunda from NPR's Climate Desk. I asked her why doctors and public health experts are pushing so hard for health to be part of the discussion in Dubai. In the past couple of years, healthcare providers have really started seeing their patients come into their offices or emergency rooms with climate-related problems. That's during extreme heat or after major floods or when diseases like dengue fever pop up in new places. There were some cases in California this year. So medical professionals, they're really seeing climate change make life harder for their patients. And, and they want to treat the root of the illness, not just the symptoms. And the root cause is burning fossil fuels, which drives climate change. But this is the first time that health is really on the agenda at these UN climate talks. Why? This is not like climate change just happened, you know, uh, overnight. Why has it taken so long to be part of the discussion? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously. I, and I just want to be clear, it's it's agenda adjacent. Let's call it that. Um, at these COP meetings, there are the official negotiations, and then there are all these side events. So tomorrow, on Sunday, there's this first ever health day. And it's a side event, but honestly, even that is a really big deal. Um, Christy Ebay is a scientist at the University of Washington. She's been researching climate and health for decades. She says that for a long time, climate change was really framed as a future problem. As the science advanced and as climate change has proceeded, it's a different world today where we see people suffering and dying right now from climate change. And that does then completely change the dynamic. We can now directly link climate change with the number of deaths during a heat wave, for example. That's because of advances in climate science, like this field called attribution. The, the 2022 heat wave in Europe, for example, some days were seven or eight degrees hotter because of human-caused climate change, and it ended up killing over 60,000 people. Wow. So 
what is the global health community asking for? There, yeah, there are really two asks. The, the first is cut fossil fuels. Jenny Miller leads the Global Climate and Health Alliance. We've got to stop making the problem worse. And that means phasing out fossil fuels as the primary driver of climate change. But countries also really need help dealing with the problems climate change is already causing for them. So the second ask is is money. That could go for building climate resilient medical facilities or setting up early warning systems for climate sensitive diseases like malaria. Um, Here's an example from Dr. Gatinji Gatahi, who's a doctor and CEO of AMREF Africa. Massive floods have hit his country, Kenya, in the last couple of weeks. More than 100 people have died already. But he's really worried about long-lasting problems beyond that, too. Water and sanitation, for example, become really big issues. And that uh, means that there is likely to be a cholera outbreak in many of these areas where there was flooding. So the health risks, they're really growing, and countries like Kenya are, are asking for help. Okay, well, now that these, all these leaders from all over the world are meeting, what are you expecting to see here? I think, first of all, we'll just see a lot more conversation than ever before about health. And already it was mentioned in the COP president's opening statement, which was really exciting for a lot of health folks. Um, And then there are also just dozens of health ministers coming to the meeting for the first time. And they're set to release a declaration about how important it is to take health into account in these conversations. I mean, we're going to see how the negotiations go. But honestly, just getting health near the climate negotiating table, that's a really big step. That was NPR's Alejandra Barunda speaking with me earlier. After my conversation with Alejandra, several organizations, including international development banks, announced they were committing $1 billion to fund health and climate-related projects. Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. The holidays are great. Gifts and food and travel and more food. But all those fun things also cost a lot of money, which has some people looking under the couch cushions this time of year. Well, if you have good credit, collecting credit card points can be a great way to ease the pain. LifeKit's Andy Tegel has a beginner's guide to making the most of credit card points. The process of spending money with your credit card in order to earn rewards like cash back or hotel stays might feel out of reach for some, like a luxury reserved only for people with both funds and time to spare. But personal finance and travel journalist Catherine Fan says, 
not so. And she speaks from personal experience. I made $28,000 a year in my very first full-time job. So, you know, no extra cash there for a $1,500-$2,000 flight home. To get to her family in Taiwan at the time, Fan opened credit cards with travel benefits. In time, she was able to fly home and back on miles alone. Over the years, Fan has flown thousands of miles for free, many times in an upgraded seat. And after years of covering credit cards for outlets like the PointSky and NerdWallet, Fan's takeaway is... It's not limited to super rich people. It's not limited to people who travel a lot for work. It's definitely not limited to, you know, like young professionals who are single and don't have kids. Anyone can get into this. But note her use of the word can here, not should or must, because there are barriers to entry. To start, you'll have to have at least good credit to access credit cards with good perks. Fan suggests a minimum of 650 or 720 if you're interested in some premium cards. Those are the ones that'll score you things like first-class plane seats or luxury hotel stays, but will often come with a high annual fee. Another absolute must? Pay off your balances in full. And if you happen to struggle at all with the temptation of trading a credit card like free money, then really don't get into it. If you can meet those criteria, there's a lot to be gained. There are a lot of travel benefits to be had with points, of course. But even if you don't plan on doing any jet setting... Credit card points are valuable because they are untaxed. So if you spend $1,000 and you earn 3% cash back on every bit of that, you get $30 free dollars that you don't have to pay tax on. I always think that's a pretty solid deal compared to 0%. The trick to getting the most bang for your buck is to make sure you choose a card that fits your unique needs and spending habits. Van carries cards as much for the perks as for the protection. For example, she carries one card that offers cell phone coverage. They'll repair or replace it for me for up to $600 or $800. Another that has good travel insurance, like protection if her bags are lost or stolen. So that's a benefit I definitely want to keep. And then there's her card for the usual gas and groceries. Does Van have recommendations for specific cards? Yeah, she's got lots of them. She mentioned the built card from Wells Fargo for earning points on rent. And the Chase Sapphire preferred card. Has one of the absolute best rental car insurance policies, hands down. But she stressed credit cards and points are only worth investing in if you can actually work them into your life and find ways to offset the cost of entry. So do your research and decide what you need before signing up for anything. Does this card have an annual fee that kicks in after the first year? There are plenty that don't. What's the monthly interest rate? 20,000 sign-up bonus points sounds like a lot, but how far will they actually get you? Find your fit, and then if you're nervous, just test the waters with one card. You should still see the benefits. You know, maybe get a cashback credit card for everyday groceries, gas. Make sure it's in your wallet. Make sure it's signed up for auto pay on your utilities. Um, even just by doing that, you'll probably end up with a few hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars in your bank account at the end of the year. For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Andy Tagle. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR, and thanks for listening. I'm Susan Levy. Stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. It runs until 8. And join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's Tuesday, December 19th, and tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Support, by the way, for WBUR comes from the Mary Alice Ericalian Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, 
the Tony Award-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music, coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from now through December 10th at the Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Vice President Harris says too many Palestinians have been killed in Gaza as Israeli jets bombarded it today after a temporary truce fell apart this week. The Gaza Health Ministry says at least 193 Palestinians have been killed since the truce ended Friday. Representatives of some 200 nations are at an international conference on climate change in Dubai trying to develop an international approach to reducing global warming. And police in Los Angeles are looking for a suspect in the fatal shootings of three homeless people. It happened this week in three separate locations. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. One of the world's most influential policymakers died this week. Henry Kissinger was 100 years old. He served as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State under Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Kissinger never ran for elected office himself, but he was a mastermind foreign policymaker Nobel Peace Prize winner, and in the eyes of some, a war criminal. Rund Abdul Fattah and Ramtin Arablouei at NPR's history podcast Throughline look back at how Henry Kissinger shaped and was shaped by the 20th century. Henry Kissinger immigrated to the United States in 1938 at the age of 15. He doesn't even speak English when he comes to the U.S. And within a decade. He's at the he's moving into powerful circles. And within a few decades, he's running the country in many respects. This is Jeremy Surrey, author of the book Henry Kissinger and the American Century. So he's born in Fürth, Germany, which is just outside of Nuremberg. And there's a large Jewish community there. So Kissinger grows up in a very modest home in a, a kind of Jewish ghetto. This world is disrupted in ways that most of us cannot imagine uh, when he's an early adolescent. Mm because the Nazis come to power. Many of them were from Nuremberg. So he's in the suburb of like the home Mm. of Nazism. He sees this. And uh, in 1935, his father under the Nuremberg laws is forced to give up his job. Uh, And and he sees his world collapse, Henry does. And in in 1938, right before uh, Kristallnacht, the family uh, comes to the United States. His maternal grandparents, who he was very close to, they don't leave. Mm. Uh, and they, they die at the hands of the Nazis. Wow. And so you just imagine him as a young boy growing up in a society that had anti-Semitism, but seeing that anti-Semitism and separation turn to violent death within a few years. 
what are some of the formative moments um, as he enters adulthood that start to kind of set him on this path towards being, you know, what he would become? Uh, the, the most important thing that happens in his life after the Holocaust and immigration is entry into the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in his life at age 19 that uh, he is not living in a kosher home. He's sent to South Carolina. He's also made a citizen more quickly than he would have been otherwise. But he's channeled into a new direction. That new direction is doing counterintelligence for the U.S. in Germany. The U.S. Army is desperate to have people who speak the language, who know the country. And so he's sent back to Germany, and he's responsible for working with some of the highest levels of the U.S. Army in managing the territory they move into, particularly after the Normandy landing. Uh, and so just, just think about that. The, the, the immigrant is back in a few years now setting the law, ruling over the, the, the area. It's, it's quite an extraordinary transformation. It's what opens him to the world of policy and is what gives him his first connections to elite figures. How does he then use those connections? So he ends up at Harvard, right? How does he start to figure out how to climb the power ladder? He has a number of patrons within the military, people who will literally write recommendations, open doors uh, for him. He has experience that makes him interesting. And many universities, including Harvard, create special openings for veterans. So Harvard creates a special class in 1946, in the middle of the year, and Kissinger has money from the GI Bill. But when he goes to Harvard, just think about it. He's a freshman with all this experience. And so for faculty, he's an incredibly interesting and important student. And so he gets all this attention. And so he brings his talent and hard work and experience together. There's almost no one I've ever met who can sit down with a powerful business leader or political figure and in two or three paragraphs explain what's happening and give you a coherent thing to do. Right? Kissinger will say, here is the problem and here's what you should do. And he'll put it together in a coherent, thoughtful way. I can see um, a danger in that though, right? In that sort of like hyper simplicity of like consolidating and being like, this is the problem. This is the solution. I'm going to make it very black and white for you. So walk me through how that approach of his, which is gaining him power, gaining him influence, um, you know, reflects pretty kind of like extreme and some would argue dangerous ideas about how to approach foreign policy. Absolutely. I mean, the most, I think, important example of this is to oversimplify what communism and socialism and anti-capitalism are in other societies. Kissinger sees communism and related entities, related ideologies in the Cold War as versions of fascism, which he obviously hates from his experience. And um, many forms of communism are fascist-like, but many forms of socialist influence are not. But for Kissinger and many around him, uh, the anti-communism, anti-fascism becomes a very simple way of trying to assess a regime and then justify the use of force against it. For example, Chile. In the 1970s, Kissinger was working as National Security Advisor and later Secretary of State under Richard Nixon. And they supported a military coup against a leftist president, Salvador Allende. That led to years and years of internal violence and oppression in the region. 
Kissinger's role was also key in another Cold War conflict, Vietnam. The war in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos lasted for nearly 20 years and resulted in the deaths of millions of people caught in the crossfire. American warplanes followed Kissinger's directives for a bombing campaign against, quote, anything that flies on anything that moves. Kissinger personally guided secret indiscriminate bombing over Cambodia, which led to as many as 150,000 civilian deaths. I'm just trying to make sense of how did he rationalize this sort of like, you know, he was calling out um, uh, the, the violent acts of the world. And yet that was so much of his approach to handling issues. What do you make of that? I, I, I think that's the irony that he himself sees, right? And has actually written about this, that in a world of extreme violence, Sometimes you have to use other violence to stop the worst violence. That's what he would say. It feels like his view of the world wins out in terms of the way America was going to approach foreign policy from there on out. And what I mean specifically by that is whatever principles we have to break, let's break them as long as we win. Unfortunately, yes. I think that's a a very astute observation, Ramtin. I think that uh, we become accustomed to winning, and winning becomes an end in and of itself. That was Jeremy Surrey, author of the book Henry Kissinger and the American Century, speaking with Throughline hosts Ramtin Arablouei and Rund abdul You can hear the whole episode by finding Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Last month, Andre 3000 made one of the most notable left turns in modern music history. Three Stacks, as he's been known in the rap world for the last couple decades, was part of the Atlanta hip-hop group Outkast. One of his most iconic verses opens the song International Players Anthem by the group UGK. So I typed a text to a girl I used to see saying that I chose this cutie pie with whom I want to be. But on November 17th, he dropped a minimalist, experimental flute album. It shocked pretty much everyone. And it got me thinking about some of the other big swings we've seen from musicians over the years. For that, let's bring in NPR Music's Stephen Thompson. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Miles. So I have to start with this Andre 3000 (laughs) album, New Blue Sun. What did you think? Well, I don't think you should go into this record expecting Hey Ya. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's not a pop record, as you said. It's an experimental flute album. And I guess what I really like about this record is we live in the streaming era. You and I are not uh, browsing the stacks at at Sam Goody or, or Tower, seeing Andre 3000 plunking down $16 and coming home and being disappointed that it's an experimental flute record. Um, You go to a streaming service and you try it out. And what I like about it is you might go into it expecting one thing and find that you're into experimental flute music. And I think that's a really cool thing. I appreciate that he is getting to follow his muse and his vision, uh, making a piece of music that that feels true to himself. And we have the opportunity to take it or leave it uh, without having to invest a whole bunch of cash uh, in, in the process. Well, music does different things, right? I, I put on this record and I was like, well, I'm not going to listen to this before I go out, but <laughs> before I get ready for bed, like while I'm brushing my teeth, like that could be, that could be more the vibe. I gave you the homework assignment to think of other times that artists have made big, surprising twists like this. What, what did you come up with? 
Well, the first thing that came to mind actually came out earlier this year and was another rapper. The rapper Lil Yachty, who makes trap music, uh, put out a psychedelic rock album called Let's Start Here. And it's, it's fascinating to hear. I mean, Lil Yachty fans were not necessarily expecting him to go down this road of this music that kind of billows out and, and uses kind of rock forms, but in exploratory ways. What's wrong? What's wrong with the man? So, so yeah, so, so, I mean, Andre 3000 isn't even the first rapper in 2023 to, to make a, a, a wild move like this. There's a long, long history of this going back through the history of recorded music where people expect one thing and get another. Some artists make a habit of it. Yeah, and it's not just rappers, right? I mean, you have a yeah. country musician that, that you're bringing forward here too, right? Yeah, I wanted to talk about Garth Brooks. Um, Garth Brooks, probably the biggest recording artist of the 90s, certainly in terms of record sales, uh, at the end of the 90s put out an album called Garth Brooks in dot 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 The Life of Chris Gaines. There's no more it's a concept album where all of the songs are supposed to be performed by this alter ego of Garth Brooks, where he is an Australian pop star named Chris Gaines. And it's very, it's like slick pop music, kind of pop rock music. And he's got this very 90s <laughs> hairstyle. And he tr kind of tried to make a go of it. Like, I, you know me as a country star. Now here I am, a pop star. What do you think? And it's it's considered, you know, a little bit of a, of, it's certainly considered a major left turn, and many people think of it as a very misbegotten record in a lot of ways, and it certainly wasn't a hit on the scale of No Fences, or, you know, or you know, the, the music for which he's, he's best known. There's not a Friends in Low Places on it, but it's another example of a musician going where the where the wind takes them and doing something that feels true to themselves in that moment. Yeah, that's what I love exploring is just like the why when you look at any of these <laughs> records, right? In terms of not in like a you shouldn't do this, but just it is something right. to think about. It When I was listening to uh, New Blue Sun, I actually thought of Bruce Springsteen and Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. <laughs> Maybe the first time anyone has ever said that. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about like, what's a musician who is known for making kind of loud, a little bit more in your face music and then decided, no, like we're going to turn the volume way down. And I think that's what a lot of people felt when they when they turned on Nebraska for the first time. Let's let's listen to a little bit of Highway Patrolman. I got a brother named Frankie. And this got me wondering, Stephen, like, is there something about age, like getting older, that makes artists just want to make music that's a little quieter? I think there's certainly something to that. I mean, there have also been cases where people have gotten older and gotten more experimental or tried to make something louder or more atonal. I think often it comes down to sort of following the, the muse where, where it takes you. In the case of Springsteen, I don't think Nebraska was a case of he's getting older. I think it was a case of he found ways to be loud quietly. Mm. Uh, if, if you listen to that record, that's not that that record's not necessarily a whisper. You hang on, you hang on his every word. Nothing feels better than blood on blood. Taking turns. I think. What often happens, I think, with records that are considered to be wild left turns is they are more reacting to the weight of expectations. 
Andre 3000 last put out a record with Outkast in 2006. And he's appeared, you know, he's done guest verses, he's popped up on songs here and there, but he hasn't put out an album in all that time. And I think that can kind of create an enormous weight of expectations where whatever you put out has to be worth it. And, you know, look at Garth Brooks in the late 90s. You know, Garth Brooks had this this string of massive, massive records, albums that sold more than 10 million copies when that was when it was possible to do that. And I, I think there's there's sometimes I think a desire to let the air out of the balloon a little bit and and kind of reset expectations and just do something that isn't necessarily undermining your fame, but just causing people to, to take a step back and look at you from a different angle. Right. Well, I mean, it, it also is worth saying that, like, the more famous or more successful you get, I feel like the riskier it is, which is part of why the Andre 3000 one is so um, fascinating is because he's considered by some to be, like, the greatest rapper or one of the greatest rappers of all time. I guess, are there mega successful stars right now who you look at as having done successfully the left turn thing? Well, I think the the first two names that spring immediately to mind are Taylor Swift and Beyonce. And they're certainly not releasing albums of experimental flute music, <laughs> but Taylor Swift, who started out as as a pop country singer, I mean the whole the whole notion of her tour right now is eras. You know, it's all the different eras of her career when she's been a country singer, she's been a pop singer, she's made kind of synth pop music, she's made this kind of duskier folk music, uh, you know, on albums like Folklore. So she's somebody who's been able to kind of seamlessly build left turns into her career so seamlessly that they don't even feel like left turns. As for Beyonce, Beyonce, you know, has has had, you know, a bunch of records of like just big R&B and pop bangers and with Renaissance pivoted to dance music and specifically queer dance music in ways that still felt true to her sound.